Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Carols for the King. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, uh, good morning again. Uh, we've been studying this month in our church uh, uh, doing a series called Carols for the King. Uh, I've been asking our church, or taking our church on this journey because I don't want this Christmas to be just another Christmas. And I think one way to prevent that is by learning the meaning behind the songs of the season. And so uh, we'll be wrapping up our journey here this morning by looking at the story and the scripture behind the carol, What Child Is This? I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to uh, Philippians chapter 2 and take out the sermon note uh, outline that's in your worship folder. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will bring one to you. And as you turn there, allow me to give you a little bit of background about, about uh, the, the, the carol, What Child Is This? Uh, it was written by an Englishman named William Dix, uh, William Chatterton Dix, in 1865. Uh, Dix was a marine insurance man uh, by trade, but an amateur poet at heart. He, uh, his father was a surgeon who was a fan of the famous poet, uh, Thomas Chatterton, and so he named his son after this popular writer at the time. Uh, similar to what we've seen happen with uh, the other Carol writers, tragedy struck William Dix when he was about 29 years old. A near-fatal illness uh, caused him to be confined to a bed for several months, and during that time he was dragged into a deep depression. During this night, dark night of the soul for uh, William, he read his Bible, he prayed and cried out to the Lord to heal him, deliver him, and he also read and studied the works of respected theologians. As he pressed in to the Lord, he recounts on that season, in that season, that he met the Lord in a new and profound way and found hope in the Christmas story. It was out of this season that the powerful poem, he titled it, The Manger Throne, uh, was born. And it was out of that season that he ended up writing several of the almost 40 or over 40 hymns that Dix wrote during his lifetime. Not long after he wrote this poem called The Manger Throne, he published it and it became popular, a popular poem to read at Christmas time, you know, just as the families huddled around the fire, and, and uh, this might have been before the, was the night before Christmas came out, and, and uh, it was gaining popularity. And then a few years later, probably in the early 1870s, there was a, uh, an unknown English musician who decided to take the poem that William Chatterton Dix wrote and parrot it with the folk song, Green Sleeps which I found this fascinating because for years I have you know, seen on uh, album covers and, and on iTunes or CD labels, it would always say, um, 
what child is this? And then maybe in parentheses, green sleeves. And I always thought, that's, that's odd. What does that mean? And so um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But here's a couple of distinctives about this carol. What child is this? That make it unique compared to the other carols of the season. Um, the first one, and, and it's one that I find the most fascinating, and that is that green sleeves was actually a part of British culture and a well-known folk tune for 200 years before Mr. Dix wrote his poem. It's so... Um, it was so popular, in fact, Greensleeves was sung in pubs, schools, and homes. I mean, nearly every Brit British person knew the song. And, and what's fascinating about this is that it's another example of someone in the 19th century combining new worship lyrics with an established folk song that was already known to the general public and sung in bars. And this is probably because I think that one of the reasons why some hymn writers in the 19th century did this is because, um, you know, think about it, the majority of the general public couldn't read or uh, play an instrument. That was still, it, those, in those times, in the 18th, 19th century, it was still pretty much the wealthy that were able to do that. And so um, using melodies that were already known by the public made it easier for church members to learn the songs. Because, and it just testifies again to the power of melody and lyrics. And so they were able to pick up the worship songs faster and learn them. It would be as if one of us wrote a poem uh, about Christmas today, and then uh, someone else falls in love with it a few years from now, and then decides to pair it with a top 40 song that most of our nation knows, and it just becomes a smash hit, and 100 years from now, churches are singing that song at Christmas time. And you can just fill in which artist it would be that, you know, maybe it's Kenny Chesney, or maybe it's Katy Perry, or Lady Gaga, or Justin Bieber, but just, it's, uh, it's pairing a secular melody with lyrics about the gospel, and then that becomes a mega hit that churches love to sing. Another distinctive of this song is the fact that verses 1 and 2 start with a question, and then the chorus answers the questions. So verse 1 reads, What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap sleeping? And then the answer is in the chorus. This, this is Christ the King. And then verse 2. Another question. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Answer. This is Christ, the King. So in a stroke of Holy Spirit-inspired brilliance, Dix composed a captivating lyric by imagining what it would have been like for visitors to come to the manger scene on Christmas night and what they would have seen and noticed and what it would have been like for them. Now, uh, like other carols, What Child Is This uses language uh, from the era and country in which it was written, Except for one phrase, most of the terms in this carol are understandable to us today. Uh, the exception I'm referring to, I think, would be haste, haste to bring him laud. So what does that mean? Well, uh, haste simply means hurry, and laud means to praise publicly. And so, simply put, the song is calling us to hurry up and praise Jesus publicly because of who he is and what he's done. 
And so with that, what child is this answers its own question by making three truth statements in its three verses. And these three truths will be the three main points on the outline that you have in front of you. And so with that, would you look at uh, number one, and here's the first thing, the first truth that uh, what child is this tells us about Jesus, and that is that the Christ child was deity wrapped in humanity. The Christ child was deity wrapped in humanity. Verse 1 asks the question, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? This is a nod to what theologians call the incarnation. A couple of weeks ago, we learned how Charles Wesley mentioned the incarnation in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When he wrote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see hail the incarnate deity. Then we looked at one of the foundational verses for the doctrine of incarnation, which is John 1.14, where John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, another passage that discusses the incarnation is Philippians chapter 2. And so with that, if you would look at verses 4 through 7 with me, where Paul talks about the example of Christ's humility, but also talks about the incarnation. And so in verse 4 he says, Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born in the form of God, excuse me, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I'm going to stop there. Uh, so, so the Christ child was deity wrapped in humanity. Uh, notice in verse 7 where Paul says, being born in the likeness of men. The doctrine of incarnation is simply this. It's God became a man in order to save men. It's the creator joining his creation. Interestingly, Paul uses a Fascinating word, a unique word in the original text. He could have used one of several Greek words to describe God becoming man or like man. He chose to use uh, not the word for identical to man. Instead, he uses a word that means similar to man. That's why in the ESV translation it says a likeness to man. Well, why is this important? Well, it means that even though Jesus became a man, he was uniquely unlike any other man. Now, this can be difficult for our finite minds to grasp, so allow me to use a, an example that I think everybody will understand regardless of how old you are. Uh, when Superman came to Krypton, from Krypton, excuse me, to Earth, he needed a secret identity that would allow him to get close to people and dwell among them. So, he became Clark Kent, the dashing and dapper reporter from the Daily Planet. He put on clothes that the people of Metropolis would wear, so he looked like them. But these clothes did not change his identity and who he really was. He was still Superman. Nor did he have to divest himself of any of his power when he became Clark Kent. He didn't cease to be Superman. 
he still was. He was Superman covered in earthly clothing. Clark Kent looked like an ordinary man, but he was no ordinary man. In a similar sense, Jesus clothed himself with flesh. So he could dwell among us while still retaining the power he needed to be our hero. He looked like an ordinary man, but he was no ordinary man. Thus, Jesus put on the full weight of humanity without putting off a milligram of his deity. Now, why was this necessary? Well, um, I could, there have been entire books written about the doctrine of our incarnation, and I have several in my library I didn't want to bore you with this morning, so let me just boil it all down into one sentence. Uh, it was necessary for Jesus to become a man so he could reveal God to us, be an example for us, get close to us, and be sympathetic to us. So, application, what do we do with this? We like to use applications here at Vanguard because we're called to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And so I like to share at least one application that allows us to take the truth of what we just heard and to connect it to real life. Well, what's this mean for me? What do I do? Well, if you know Christ as your Savior, I think the one application that comes to mind is we should become like him. We should become like him. Romans 8, 28 and 29 is a, a couple verses that everybody loves to quote because it says that God is working all things for good. But one thing that people forget to look at is that in verse 29, it says that he is working to conform believers into the likeness of his son. And so that is the good that he's doing. He is working in our lives to make us more like Christ. And so the incarnation says Jesus put on flesh to look like us so we could learn how to put on Jesus and look like him. Therefore, the singular question that every professing Christ follower, I think, must answer when their feet hit the floor each morning before work or school is this. How can I be more like Christ today? How can I be more like Jesus today? The second truth that what child is this tells us in the second verse is this. Here's number two in your outline. And that is that the Christ child was humility wrapped in poverty. William Chatterton Dix writes, Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are, are feeding? As William Dix reflected on the Christmas story, he was struck by the irony that God would choose to be born in a horse trough. It, it didn't compute for him. Dix was in awe of the fact that a God who was so rich would choose to humble himself by becoming poor. To Dix, God humbling himself seemed as contradictory and unexpected as a cat learning dog tricks or the Cleveland Browns winning the Super Bowl or Republicans raising taxes and lowering the deficit or President Trump apologizing. These, just, these things don't happen. They're not expected. They're out of the ordinary. And that's what Dick's saying as well, the authors of Scripture realized. 
Notice back in your Bibles in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The word used in the original language for servant is doulos. It's a bond servant. It's a, it's a slave, literally. Slaves had no rights in those days. They served at the mercy and pleasure of their master. It means that Jesus, even though he did not stop being God when he came to earth, gave, he did, though, however, give up his rights that he could have demanded as God in order to show us what humility looks like. Look at uh, verses 8 through 11 with me. Paul continues, he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, application, what do we do with this truth that Jesus uh, was humility wrapped in poverty? Where, where do we go with this? What's this mean for us? Well, we should humble ourselves just as he did. I think it means we should humble ourselves. Some have misinterpreted the teaching on humility in the scriptures as uh, meaning that uh, we must become poor in order to be humble. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There's a question instead, I think, implied in the text of Philippians 2 that we need to grapple with here. And here it is. If God can humble himself when he didn't have to, can't we humble ourselves before God? Jesus is showing us how to do it. And he didn't have to do it. So, so what does that look like? What does it look like to humble yourself? Well, if, if you don't know Christ is your Savior, it's, it's, it's admitting that you're a sinner that can't save yourself and admitting that you need Christ to save you from your sin and pay the penalty for your sin and giving your heart and life to him. But if you do know Christ, it's, it's children obeying their parents. It's wives submitting to their husbands. It's husbands serving their wives. It's... It's boasting about Christ instead of ourselves. It's being more critical of ourselves and less critical of others. It's being teachable and correctable and respectable and lovable by God's grace and empowered by his spirit. So the Christ child was humility wrapped in poverty. And it calls us to humble ourselves. He calls us to humble ourselves. Here's the third truth that... Uh, this carol tells us, it's th number three, the Christ child was royalty wrapped in obscurity. Uh, Mr. Dix writes in verse three, so bring him incense, gold, and myrrh, come peasant and king to own him. It's a reference to Matthew chapter two, when the wise men came from the east to worship and bring gifts to the newborn king. And so after you write uh, down point number three, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter two, and I'm just gonna read a portion of the Christmas story from Matthew two. Verse 
In Matthew chapter 2, you might remember, it's the story of the wise men, and it's believed that uh, they traveled for about two years following the uh, special star that was in the sky when Jesus was born. They came to Jerusalem and went to the evil King Herod, who was known for his viciousness and easily threatened by any rumor of another king. And so uh, the wise men go to King Herod and they're asking, where is the Christ child? Where is the Messiah that we have studied for years? And these uh, wise men were believed to have been astronomers, uh, scientists, uh, spiritual men, not necessarily believers in the Messiah, but uh, had been studying and reading about him and wanted to meet him in person. And so uh, it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Which, by the way, he's lying there. Just saying. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so uh, we've heard the, the terms of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and I realize in 21st century uh, democratic republic in our economy, those are foreign terms to us, but we hear them in a lot of carols. Uh, they actually were uh, common gifts that wealthy people shared with royalty and with each other. Uh, uh, gold was, of course, we know what gold is, but it was much more rare in the first century than it even is today. And it was thus worth much more money. Frankincense was an ingredient used in making perfume. And again, only wealthy people or royals wore perfume back then. And then myrrh was an ingredient that was put in anointing oil. It was also a perfume and a deodorizer of clothes. We know from reliable historical documents that such gifts could only be afforded by the wealthy, and usually it was royals that received such gifts. The wise men bringing these gifts was not only meant to convey that Jesus was royalty, but interestingly, it's God's providence providing funding for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus when they had to escape to Egypt fleeing from Herod. The dictionary defines obscure as being of no prominence, no fame, or distinction. Far from public notice, remote. This certainly describes the birth of Jesus, but not the birth of a king. You see, when royal babies were born, much like, for example, when Prince William and Prince Harry were born to Lady Diana 30-something years ago, there's lots of pomp and circumstance, 
lots of celebration and publicity. But not when Jesus was born. And this was what Dix was wrestling with when he wrote his lyrics. Jesus, Jesus being born in obscurity seemed unheard of, as unheard of to, to William Chatterton Dix as, say, Britain's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle eloping. If you haven't heard the news yet, they're engaged. It's all over the news, by the way. Imagine them eloping instead of having a royal wedding. I mean, anybody who's somebody plus People Magazine have marked it as May 19th. I mean, that's the day you have to book it on your calendar and sit in front of the TV and eat bonbons all day and watch the royal wedding. I won't be doing that, but you can let me know how it goes, okay? But just as royals don't have secret weddings, they also don't have obscure births. But Jesus did. Bethlehem, a little shoddy village, blue-collar people outside of the megacity Jerusalem. So small, it didn't even have a stoplight. No rush hour traffic. A place that, oh, you're from where? Where, where was that? Bethlehem. Where, where is that again? Oh, it's south of here. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't know. Much like many of the small towns when I was going to school at the University of Iowa, I remember everybody was from a small town in Iowa that was at Iowa or a Chicago suburb. And, and I learned all sorts of small towns in Iowa. Where are you from? New Hampton. Oh, interesting. Oh, where's that at? Because pretty much there's like Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, and that's it. Ottumwa. Oh, haven't heard of that. Uh, Atlantic, where my wife is from. Small, small towns. Not known for much. Yeah. Sorry, what was yours? Eagle Grove. Oh, Eagle Grove. Yes, that's right. Heidi's from Eagle Grove, Iowa, another metropolis. Booming with growth. And so Dix tells us in his final verse of his song, The King of Kings salvation brings. And I love this lyric. It's been ringing in my head all week. Let loving hearts enthrone him. What a fascinating word. So I did a little study and got my dictionary out. And enthrone is not a common word that you hear in our democratic republic these days because we don't have kings and queens in our country. But it is common in monarchies. To enthrone is a verb that means to install a monarch in a ceremony at the beginning of their rule. So if Jesus needs to be enthroned, then where does he want to rule? Well, the answer is in your heart. That's what Dix was saying is, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, and because he's royalty, let loving hearts enthrone him, install him as the monarch of your heart. So that's our application, and thankfully, Dix gives it to us. Enthrone him in your own heart. The scriptures teach metaphorically that we all have a throne in our heart upon which we place things that we love most. 
We place things that we worship there. For some people, it's their appearance. For others, it's their children, their spouse, their job, their career, their money. But one of the many things that the gospel accomplished is when Jesus came and was born in a manger and grew up and died on the cross for the sins of man, he made it possible for false gods and idols to be knocked off the throne of our hearts so that he could take residence on the throne, so that he could have our hearts. And we could worship something that will not fade, not let us down, fail us, and will last forever. So the question that this Christmas carol poses, what child is this? The question it poses is whether or not you've enthroned Jesus in your heart. Is he your king? He wants to be, and I can promise you, you will never find a more loving, benevolent, uh, powerful, gracious, forgiving king ever. Ever. I like to illustrate this uh, with, uh, I've done this before in when I've been teaching on this topic by just showing you a heart with a little chair, a little throne, uh, and with a question mark. Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Is it you? Is it somebody else? Or is it Jesus? Until Jesus is on the throne of your heart, you will never find peace or contentment. And if Jesus is not on the throne of your heart, you do not have the benefits of knowing Jesus, forgiveness and peace and eternal life. The scriptures teach that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and as a result of that, because of our sin, we're separated from God. He cannot allow sin in his presence. And because God hates sin and he's holy and he must punish sin, the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death. We have all earned a death penalty. However, we're reminded in the scriptures that there's a free gift, the gift of eternal life that is available through Christ Jesus. John 3.16 Many of you are familiar with it, says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. God sending Jesus to be born in a manger to grow up to die on the cross is God saying, let me take care of your sin problem because perfection is required to be in my presence but nobody can be perfect. I will send my son to be perfect and then take your place on the cross so that I can be with you forever. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it is by grace we can be saved through faith in Christ. It is not something we can earn. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough. We can't give enough. It's a gift that must be unwrapped. It's not the result of works. So no one will be boasting in heaven. If you've not made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not yet been forgiven for your sin, if you've not trusted in him alone for your salvation, I, I want to urge you to do that today. 
you can do so by just simply uttering a simple prayer. By first of all, admitting to him, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. Uh, Secondly, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me and then resurrecting yourself three days later. And then thirdly, giving your heart to him, saying, Jesus, I'm going to leave my sin. It's called repentance. I'm going to turn away from my sin and stop doing things my own way. I'm going to stop living for myself, and I'm going to turn my heart and follow you. I want you to be my king, my savior, my Lord. And the Lord promises in the scriptures that anyone who does that by faith will have peace, will have eternal life, will have forgiveness, and many, many other blessings that come through a personal relationship with Jesus. If you have questions about how to do that, I would love to talk to you after the service. You can email me, call me, fax me, whatever you want. I'd love to talk to you about it. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much that you don't waste anything. I've been reminded this month, Lord, as we've studied the carols, that even in dark seasons, dark nights of the soul, in great physical affliction or depression, you have birthed out of godly men powerful songs beautiful songs that talk about you. Thank you, Lord, that in such seasons, you're able to bring rich, deep, moving lyrics. Lord, I want to pray for uh, anyone here today that may not know you, know your son. Would you please reveal Jesus to them? Would you, Father, open their eyes and show them not only their sin, but show them how much you love them and want a relationship with them. And Lord, for those that do know you already, would you stir in their hearts in such a way by your spirit and with the scriptures and the carols that we sing a new and fresh appreciation for the Christmas story. Would you stir in their hearts a fresh, passionate understanding and appreciation for God coming to dwell among men, growing up to become sin when he had no sin so that we could be reconciled to you. Father, as we transition now to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, would you speak to us by your Spirit? Would you help us to convene and meet with you, to commune with you? And help our small, finite minds understand the significance what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray.
again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.